Welcome to the Access VFX podcast, pursuing inclusion, diversity, awareness, and opportunity in VFX, animation, and games industries. Hi, I'm Simon Devereaux, founder and director of Access VFX, bringing the visual effects, animation, and games industry together, working towards a shared goal to make our industry more diverse and inclusive by taking action rather than just talking about it. Welcome to another Access VFX podcast discussion episode. So this is officially episode 43 of the uh, the now long running Access VFX podcast. We've had a short summer break, admittedly, on the Access VFX pod, and rightly so. Uh, We all need a break, don't we? And uh, we're kicking off our new season with a bang. So we're we're back with an Access VFX Chicago slash Montreal kind of mashup. I know there's lots of you on this call uh, as guests from all over the world. And uh, we're calling this, uh, it's a snappy title, it's uh, Ever Thought About Working in the USA or Canada and Don't Know Where to Start? So it sounds like a, sounds like a game show. Um, but that's what we're going to be discussing today. And this session is with, uh, with Sandrine, our immigration attorney, who will answer your questions on the visa process and, and more. So, so who is Sandrine? Say nice wave, Sandrine. I've got a little bio to read out now. Um, So Sandrine uh, leads our own uh, US-Canada immigration practice and collaborates with XEO Attorneys, a Montreal-based boutique immigration firm where she leads the US immigration practice. So as an immigrant herself, she first got into US immigration to help out a dear friend to avoid deportation, and after that she was hooked. After a 10-year international career with the UN in African war zones, dealing with international war crimes courts and disarming child soldiers, she moved on to help clients fight immigration cases before US government agencies was right down her alley. As a first child and another immigration move later, Sandrine joined private practice in Canada where she advises clients from the four corners of the world on relocation strategies to Canada or the United States. From artists to entrepreneurs, investors to IT consultants, athletes to inventors, she excels at elaborating strategies that set out or set our clients on the path to their own immigration journey. She also has a knack for helping clients overcome criminal and other inadmissibilities. That's a great word. As Sandrine's long list of law degrees, oh sorry, Sandrine's long list of law degrees and bar memberships can attest, she has a passion for law that is almost only surpassed by her love of anything covered in chocolate. So how was that Sandrine? They'll do a good job. It's perfect, thank you. So for this session, uh, we are recording live for an assembled group of sign-ups. So thank you everybody that's uh, joining us for this session. And of course, if you're listening on the podcast, this was pre-recorded. and it was... So welcome, Sandrine. And I'll hand over to Kate from Carbon, our AVFX Chicago uh, co-lead, along with Colette, and our host for this episode. So Kate, do you want to take it from here? Yeah, absolutely. Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining. I did want to let you know, too, that if you have any questions that come up during the series of this chat, go ahead and put it um, in the chat box because Colette is going to be monitoring that. And then at the end of the discussion, we'll take a few questions from you. Um, But yeah, I think we're just ready to get started. Thank you all again for joining. Um, I was really excited when this was you know, brought up as the topic, because I've always personally wondered about this and fantasized about, you know, up and leaving to work in another country. Um, So I am really curious how, you know, this 
all happens. I work with a bunch of people um, who are international and the whole process honestly is um, a mystery to me. So thank you, Sandrine, for answering all our questions up front. Um, I think we want to start though at the very basics. If you could just tell us what is the difference between a visa and a work permit? Sure, no problem. Well, first of all, I want to thank you, Colette and Simon for the warm welcome. And uh, yes, let's get straight into it. So to simplify matters, if you have to think of the visa as the key to enter the country, any country really, this is the thing you obtain at the consulate uh, in order to be able to enter, whether it's a as a visitor, as a worker, uh, you name it. It's just to enter, meaning that it, if it expires while you're in the country, it's okay as long as your status is maintained by, in this case, a work permit. The work permit is typically, well, it's work authorization. Um, typically, you obtain it before going to the consulate to get your visa. And this is to get, to get the work permit. This is where you, you need to show uh, your merits and why you qualify. Um, so to give you an illustration, in Canada, visas uh, that you need in your passport to enter are required for some citizenships only. For instance, Europeans do not need a visa. Work permits, however, are required for all workers. In the U.S., a visa is required for all citizenships except Canadians, with some exceptions. Um, and a work permit, obviously, is required for everyone. <laughs> um, so in both, in both cases, you need to work, you need to obtain your work permit before going to the, the consulate to get your visa. Okay, so the visa gets you into a country and the work permit allows you to work in that country. <laughs> and you suggest getting the work permit before the visa it's not just a suggestion this is how it must be done <laughs> got it got it okay great and then um there's different types of work permits in and visas right i've heard about an o1 i think what is that and then there's an h1b what what are the differences between these which one do i want <laughs> okay well it's good you're naming those two they're very relevant to your industry um o1 is what is called in layman's term, the extraordinary ability visa. And so that applies to anybody who can show extraordinary abilities in the arts, science, business, athletics, and also motion picture and TV industry. So it, it's quite broad. It covers a lot of professions within those fields. And what you need in order to obtain one um, is first of all, a US agent and or employer. Uh, in this particular visa category, the, the, the term employer can be interpreted a bit more loosely meaning you don't need an employment relationship as long as you have an agent, somebody that can sponsor you, usually an entity that's based in the U.S. that can sponsor you. And then, about that. yes. About that. So the sponsorship in the country for you, does that have to be a company or can it be a person? No, it has to be a company. Okay, it has to be a company. Yeah. That you it's have not an agent in the sense that what you would hear in it's, let's say in the music industry or in the movie industry. Um, although it could be, but usually it's, uh, it's supported by a company that will sponsor you. Okay, um, so you've it, already and, applied to this company and they said, yes, we wanna hire you and you know, we'll be your sponsor. Right, to get but okay. to, to apply this to, the, to an artist, for instance, obviously they wouldn't apply for a job and be an employee, but they would apply to be uh, to be sponsored by an agency, a talent agency, 
And then that agency would represent to the government, okay, I'm going to take on this artist and I commit to finding XYZ gigs in the next 12 months for this artist, whether it's in music and cinema, you name it. So that's the relationship that you need to have with this US entity. And then in the application, you need to obviously provide evidence of your high achievements. And by high achievements, we mean, I mean, the government means significantly above that ordinarily encountered. So either you have uh, highly recognized awards such as a Nobel Prize or an Academy Award, in this case, you're set. If you don't have this, which most people don't, <laughs> uh, you have to meet three of eight criteria that are defined by the government. And so these include lesser known awards, membership in associations where uh, outstanding achievement is required to become a member, published material about your work, uh, proof that you've made original contributions of major significance in your field. Um, it can be authorship in professional journals or major media. Uh, it can be that you have, you show that you have either um, been paid a high salary or compensation or that you will be paid a high salary or compensation comparatively to your peers. Uh, you can also show that you've participated as a judge or in a panel to judge the work of others. So that's a sign that you've been recognized by your peers in your field. And uh, also that you will or have been employed in a critical role in an organization of distinguished reputation. So not only you need to show your credentials, but you need to show that the organizations you have been or will be attached to in and of themselves have uh, acquired um, quite some maturity uh, recognition in their field. Okay. Um, and that's all for the O1 work that you can apply for. Right. I just want to add that there is uh, some specificity for the movie industry and TV industry specifically, uh, because some of those criteria that I listed don't necessarily apply. So they've adapted it. And some of those criteria are replaced by evidence that you either have a lead or starring world in a production whether it's before camera, behind camera, um, international recognitions for your achievement, uh, or and record of major commercial success. So it can be, you know, either you've, your VFX team has won an award, uh, a movie award, obviously you're not named individually, but you're part of the team that has been named or has won the award. Uh, so this is the kind of thing you want to go with. Okay. Okay, great. And my Academy Award is still in the mail. I haven't received it yet. So I might be better suited to something like the H-1B visa. Can you tell us about that? <laughs> so yes, H-1B is for, uh, it's, it's referred to the to it at the specialty occupation visa. So it's very common among um, IT industries and a lot of Indian and Chinese scientists come under these visas or engineers as well, come under these visas uh, to work specifically in an employment position with a US employer. So specialty occupation for USCIS, the US Immigration Agency, means it requires a bachelor's degree or an equivalent in years of experience. Uh, a U.S. bachelor's degree. So if you have your bachelor's degree from abroad, you need to obtain a credential evaluation to, to show that it's the equivalent. It's been recognized by organizations, professors in the U.S. that uh, it's, it's the equivalent of a bachelor's degree. And so H-1Bs are very good for fields such as IT, like we mentioned, engineering, science, VFX, medicine, finance, accounting, architecture. It's, it's very broad. It's a bit broader than, uh, than O-1 in that sense. Um, but it, as you can see, it fits to professions that in order to perform them, it, you need to have a bachelor's degree. And in the application, your employer 
needs to show that not only you have those qualifications, but the job they're offering does require those qualifications. You can't say, oh, I need an H-1B candidate from India, for instance. He has a bachelor's degree, but he's really just going to do a basic programming job that anybody could do like from scratch at the beginning, just learning you know, on the job. No, you need to show that it's an advanced programming job that they, only a bachelor's degree um, uh, holder can perform this position. So it's, it's quite a substantive application to, to prepare. The little downside with this H-1B application is that it's a lottery-based uh, system, meaning that your employer, well, first you need to find an employer who's willing to sponsor you. <laughs> and then the employer must enter you in the lottery every year in March, once a year. And once you're selected, uh, you apply. So that's when you submit your documentation. And if approved, you can only start work of a, in October 1st of that year. So there's a whole six to seven month period where you're waiting and you have to either wait outside the US or wait inside on another status uh, to find out whether you will be able to continue in H-1B. Mm, interesting. And is that the same for Canada as well? Uh, in Canada, you have other categories that are similar in the sense that they target the same professions. Um, they, they, you, basic requirements are similar in terms of showing your credentials. The process is slightly different, uh, not only because some countries need visas and others do not, but also in Canada, for some permits, um, you need to first apply to the equivalent of the Department of Labor, which is called Service Canada. Um, and they, they, there you need to show that you've, you as the employer have um, uh, tested the labor market. So you've shown that you cannot find a Canadian citizen or resident to do the job. Therefore, you can offer the job to um, um, a foreign worker. But then you have exemptions because some professions, uh, a lot of them in IT, but also, um, well, there's, there's quite a lot of fields that have been recognized as already having a labor shortage anyway. So you can bypass some of those steps and move on straight to asking for the labor market impact assessment, which, which is how they call it, LMIA. Once you have this, you go and apply for your work permit. Okay, okay good to know. Interesting. So the takeaways, I guess, are finding a company to sponsor you who knows that you're exceptional and then working with them to prove that you're exceptional. Right. And that the <laughs> job is fancy and only you can do it. Right. There are other visa categories, obviously, um, that, but you know, these are the main ones that are, that are open to everyone as long as you meet the, the criteria. Uh, for younger, maybe less qualified um, uh, personnel or workers, you know, people sort of um, grow from a post-graduation work permit. Um, so they've been on a student visa and then post-graduation work permits, get first couple of years of experience, depending on their visa and their degree category. They can get an extension of two years if they are in what is called the STEM field. So science, technology, engineering, and math. Uh, these can obtain a total of three years of work permit. So that gives you three years to secure permanent employment, jump to a more permanent uh, or long-term work visa, uh, and get an employer who will be on board to sponsor you for that. Right. Right. That's interesting about the STEM program. What, what would your guess be for like a usual timeline? to obtain all these things without that in the US. I mean, it's not a very hugely, right? You mentioned only being able to be put into the lottery in March. 
So uh, obviously, you, I mean, I've given you the timeline for H1B and it's hard to shorten that by much. But uh, for other categories, it depends on so many factors. First of all, your nationality, if you need a visa or not to enter. Well, for the U.S., most, most, most times you need a visa except Canadians. Um, but the work permit phase, which is, like I mentioned, something you need to obtain upfront. That is handled within uh, the U.S., not at a consulate. And USCIS, the agency that adjudicates those, has various processing times depending on where you have to file. And that depends on the employer's uh, primary office location. So you can file in Vermont if you're more on the east side. You file in California if you're more on the west side. And then you have other offices depending on visa categories. They each have their processing times. It can go from one, two months to five, six months, depending on the time of the year and the visa category. You can accelerate that for most visa categories by paying a nice uh, pricey <laughs> additional fee of $1,400,000, uh, 1400 US dollars, sorry. Um, so, you know, when you've applied for an H-1B and your employer has already uh, spent $2,500 just for the basic application, you want to think carefully as to whether you want to speed it up. But yes, that gives you a decision within 15 days. So right. if you're, so if you're in a rush. How bad they want you, maybe they'll pay for that, right? Not only that, but also depending on the strength of your application. Because what you don't want is force an officer to make a decision on an application that's weak. They will straight deny it. So you want to give them time. You want to, if you're not in a rush, don't submit the premium processing fee. <laughs> that's my well, recommendation that's anyway. Advice. That's good advice. Okay, so timeline varies. Could be a really long time. Plan ahead. Get ready to wait. Definitely. <laughs> okay, good to know. Um, so, yeah, and you have to have a sponsor. You can't just apply for this in anticipation that you want to move somewhere and work. Yeah. You already have to have somebody, a company to help you out. Okay. Right. Unless right. you set up your own company, but that's a whole other set of crack factors. Yeah. For the next podcast. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and you mentioned um, a little bit about the documentation that you know us artists should start to get together. You mentioned if we were you know judging any award shows, um, you know, do would they ever look at a portfolio of your work, or is it more they're more interested in accolades? Mm -hmm. they even be able to judge work that you would show. They, they would, obviously, everything goes into um, putting your, your expertise in layman's terms because USCIS officers, they, have, they adjudicate, well, not thousands, but you know, countless applications a day, and they move from uh, uh, an AR uh, expert to uh, somebody who wants to open a bakery uh, to somebody who's in a completely different field, and they have to switch and understand what does this person work in and what makes them qualified. So they have to quickly understand the criterias to get the job, but also do you meet those criterias? So it's up to the, 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 the employer and the attorney, if they work with one, to help break down everything so that it's understandable to the officer. Mm. There's obviously keywords that, you know, with practice you're used to, to refer to that help put an application, simplify, you know, the, 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 the process. And especially, I would say, especially more so for O1, because you want to show somebody that is extraordinary, so extraordinary that not everyone can do their job, yet you have to sort of, you know, down it a little bit to say, look, this is what this guy really does at the end of the day, you know? So it has to be understandable. <laughs> Right. So, teaching so, people, so teaching lawyers <laughs> everywhere about rigging and compositing. 
Well, as lawyers, we also learn a lot about industries we knew nothing about five minutes before you hired us. <laughs> so, right, I bet, I bet. Kind of a yeah. fascinating job, I can imagine. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, uh, it's very interesting. Okay. Um, so, but in essence, what you need to gather, obviously, is your job offer. It needs to be a firm job offer um, or, or some commitment that you're going to be hired against compensation for work against compensation. A well-built CV and a matching LinkedIn page if LinkedIn is necessary in your industry. Oftentimes, we see a CV and then the job description is very detailed, but on LinkedIn, you have a different title or different uh, employment dates. So, we usually ask people that they make things match. Otherwise, an officer is, is likely to question, you know, did you really have have this experience. Uh, employer reference letters are, are relevant for H1B, uh, especially if you don't have a bachelor's degree. Um, for O1, it's good because then you want solid, very well-documented reference letters that don't just say, yes, he worked between March 2019 and April 2021, but they want to describe how you contributed and how you were such a big asset and, and what projects you worked on and who worked with you and 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 why you recommended uh, you're recommending this person to work in a specific field you know so it, it really needs to put a shiny light on you um original diplomas and certificates and transcripts uh, i say original because for one visa category that we haven't really talked about yet uh, it's it's important because you're going to be asked to present it but generally copies are fine otherwise but it needs to be official copies and for one obviously the evidence we discussed of your high achievements awards lucrative contracts articles about or written by you or about you uh etc excellent excellent sounds like a lot of work i'm not gonna lie this <laughs> <laughs> it's it requires creativity when you know especially in the owen fields because everybody comes from a different background and it's to work in a very niche field usually mm -hmm. and you need to show to to really extract you know how this person what may seem normal to them because they grow in this industry uh is actually extraordinary so you need to like extract it from the cv extract it from the work experience and what the person tells you and and tell them look you've done all this but it's not on your cv you look you need to put it and and, and document it in, in parallel so it's it's actually quite uh, interesting on a creative creative front right absolutely okay you mentioned the stem degree program earlier and i want to circle back to that for a little bit can you tell us again what that is and if that how that's beneficial in this process. So STEM is, uh, stands for science, technology, engineering, and math. So any degree in those fields uh, is considered a STEM degree. And it means that after your one year post-graduation work permit that anybody who graduates from a US university can get, in, assuming you're in a recognized accredited university, um, this can be extended by two years for those STEM degree holders. Um, and it's really essential if you're applying for an H-1B type um, in an engineering field, obviously, or science or technology. Uh, it's always good to have. Um, in other visa categories, it really depends on the job that's offered. But for O-1, I would say it's probably less so required, especially if, except if you're applying for O-1 in science. It might be useful. Um, but again, O-1 requires that you show so many different things about your extraordinary ability that the degree itself is not an achievement because anybody in your class that year got the same degree. So that alone doesn't really make you stand out. But if you've gotten awards or scholarships, uh, it's taken into account to some extent, but academic achievements are not, uh, are not 
preferred when you're submitting evidence for an O1. If the O1 is really meant for people who have achieved uh, high achievement in, in their profession after they've graduated. So it's a plus to add it because it shows you've been outstanding from day one, but uh, it's not going to get you an O1 visa by in and of itself. Got it. Got it. Okay. <clears throat> so assuming that the people applying for this work permit are super awesome and their employer knows it, what about if they have a spouse? How easy is it? Can we tack the spouses onto this and they can come over too? Or is that a whole separate visa thing? How does that work? <clears throat> It, it, both, actually. You can tag on the wife or the, or the husband, but it is a separate visa thing. <laughs> um, so all work permit categories, except NAFTA, allow the spouse to work in the U.S. They, all, they are always allowed to come and to accompany dependents. That means spouse and children are always allowed to accompany somebody who earned the right to get a visa and a work permit. Uh, but then most categories, not all, allow the spouse to work. The process is slightly different. Unlike the principal worker, the spouse cannot obtain the work permit before coming and before getting the visa. They get the visa as the accompanying spouse. And then once in the US, once they have a US address, they can apply for a work permit, which they get about you know, three to four months after arriving, after applying. Um, and that visa is not tied to any employer, unlike the, the primary um, uh, worker, foreign worker that came in on a visa. They have to work for that particular employer that sponsored them. The spouse can work for anybody that would hire them. And children can go to school, they cannot work. Even if they're 16 and it's legal on the labor front, it's not legal on the immigration front. <laughs> oh yeah, interesting. And is that the same in Canada as well? Uh, yes, well, with differences, of course, if uh, children like you know, um, young adults are uh, already at university, they, they get a student permit or, in the U.S. and Canada, they can get a study permit before. There are um, conditions under which a student can work 20 hours a week, uh, both in Canada and the U.S. But if they are as dependent of their family, then no, they, they, they cannot work um, in a sense on, on their visa. Okay, interesting. And, um, and I just want to specify, in Canada, all visa categories allow the spouse to get uh, a work permit. All work permit categories allow, give one to the spouse. Thanks, Canada. Canada's great. <laughs> I feel like they, they're just a little bit easier to work with. <laughs> on some things. I mean, the immigration uh, system is premised on a very different approach to start with. It's a merit-based uh, system, whereas in the U.S. it's, it's, it's still very much um, uh, working on the assumption that, you know, it was, it was started with, you know, family reunification. That's still the bulk of U.S. immigration. Workers are just a tiny sliver of the proportion of immigrants that come in every year. Um, Trump has been trying to change that uh, with reason I will give him that even though I don't agree with a lot of things he says um, but uh, yes uh, whereas Canada is mostly focusing on merits so you come because you have a work permit we will let anybody in your family work as well um, yeah it makes sense yeah speaking of the client and you uh, the climate in US and Canada based on like what's been going on the last four years have has have you seen an increase or decrease in the sort of applications coming through? Um, well, in the last four years, not so much. In the last six months, yes. Um, 
you know, just to give you a bit of background, 2016 Trump campaign specifically on curbing what he calls chain immigration. So it's basically the American citizen or resident, permanent resident sponsoring a spouse who sponsors their children and so on and so on, or a sister or a brother. Um, so, so that's what he calls chain immigration. Um, and in 2020, so he's been really battling against various aspects of immigration. Um, in 2020, COVID gave him the opportunity to really shut down a number of visa programs without real evidence that it would have a positive impact on the economy, uh, quite the contrary, actually. So there was the, the March travel ban for residents of Schengen, China, Iran, the UK, Ireland, Brazil. It's still in place. April green card ban uh, for anyone outside the US who was waiting for an immigrant visa. So for example, a US permanent resident that's sponsoring a spouse, um, a US citizen that's sponsoring a brother, a foreign born brother, um, these kind of things. So this ban has been extended until December 31st. And then in June, there was the June visa ban, which lifted the grant of H1B, L1, J1, and other type of visas um, at consulates. So what that means is that it applies to new visas for people who are outside the country. Anybody who's in that status or moving to that status from within the US, they're fine, they're not affected. Okay. But what this means is that applications have definitely decreased since March because of this, because of all these bans. Some people with, uh, for example, the green card ban in March, in April, they knew they were no longer qualified, but they applied anyway thinking, their application will just be stalled for a bit until the ban is lifted with which you know it's it's it's, it's a good reasoning uh personally i think uh, it's just that the process is going to take longer and uh there's also people you know with the uncertainty uh wanting to spend less and not really sure of engaging that kind of money into an immigration process so yes people have not applied when they were intending to or, or simply because the chances of approval are so up in the air simply because uh, there's as on the merit, the merits have not changed, the law has not changed, but the climate is so scary and everybody's worried about being shipped back home because especially students in the last few months have been very worried um, for various reasons. But there's just this, the media frenzy that, that goes around all of these things that make people wary before doing anything. So yes, applications have definitely decreased. Right. And what would be your recommendation? Do you think you know, if somebody's ready to apply right now, would you advise them to hold off until after the U.S. November elections? Or do you think it still behooves them to get it in knowing that it'll be stalled? No, I would not suggest to delay anything based on the elections coming, simply because, first of all, the bans that are currently in effect, they affect visa, not work permits. Um, Trump has a very limited ability to curb immigration and to change immigration law by executive order. He can only prevent entry under national security grounds of, of people outside, but people inside, they're fine. So the work permit process is not affected. So anybody who has a job offer secured or about to be secure, they should apply for the work permit because it takes a few months anyway. And then once, if the administration changes, it will be effective in January, meaning that the earliest we will see all these bans lifted will be February. By that time, the consulates will be instructed to reopen uh, or to process those visa categories again, and then you'll have your approval in hand already. So you, then you can move on to consulate stage. If you have a work permit approval, it doesn't expire from, for most categories. So you can just put it in your back pocket until you have the opportunity to go to a consulate. Mm, excellent. And it, 
I know some visa categories are going to be more affected by this than others. Are there any alternatives, let's say in Canada, that somebody could consider? Um, yes, definitely. I mean, Canada, Canada has done a good job trying to compensate for the shortcomings of uh, the U.S. government lately, uh, and attract foreign. They, they really worked out to, to attract foreign businesses and, and talent. Uh, so it's definitely slated to benefit from from the mess that's happening south of the border. Um, so, like I was saying earlier, the basic work permit process in Canada goes by labor market test. Okay, that means the employer needs to advertise the position for 30 days. Then they have to explain, oh look, we never find a Canadian who's able or willing, so we're going to offer the job to the foreign worker. So that's a very long process. But then the government has tailored a lot of exemptions specific to, to specific fields or industries where a labor shortage has been identified. One that's very commonly used is the global talent stream. It's, it's the alternative to H1B, uh, really. Mm. Um, this one is for highly skilled workers as well. Um, and so you, you do get the labor market test impact assessment uh, document at the end, but without the minimum requirement, uh, uh, recruitment requirement. So you don't need to advertise. Um, and you also can get this in an accelerated manner in two weeks rather than several months. Um, once you have this labor market impact assessment, LMIA, you go apply for your work permit. And depending on where you come from, you apply at the border or you apply at the consulate. Uh, that's pre-COVID, that's the normal process. With COVID, there are some adjustments. Not everybody can show up at the border like this unannounced, um, like they're used to. And so the, this, this uh, particular visa category or work permit category, should I say, is good for 12 occupations that have been pre-identified as experiencing a labor shortage, mostly IT related. And that includes producers, technical, creative and artistic directors and project managers. So that's good for anything VFX, video game industries, uh, mm -hmm. computer and IT system manager, uh, web designers, programmers, IT engineers, analysts and consultants, uh, digital media designers, software engineers, uh, you name it, all of these categories. And then you have subcategories within those. So it's, it's usually anybody who's attached to that field, they usually can fit pretty well in that category. So it's a good process for, it's a good way for employers to attract talent, especially from the U.S. where you have so many H-1B applicants or prospective H-1B applicants waiting. There's the uncertainty that's going on right now. The process for H-1B is very long. Um, so if the employer has an office in Canada, it's very easy to make those people come much faster so they can start becoming productive right away. And actually in the last few months or in the last year, we've seen a lot of American companies open offices in Canada just so that they can do this and not wait uh, until the talent can come to the US. Right. Um, in Quebec, there's a similar, somewhat similar process uh, that's specifically for Quebec. Quebec always has its own way of doing things immigration-wise. Uh, it's, it's also a facilitated LMIA process where you can bypass uh, advertisements um, of the job. And Quebec has identified 214 occupations uh, that qualify as you know, having a labor shortage, including those 12 we just discussed. So video game and IT testing technicians, sound and video recording technician, but it also includes chefs, uh, tailors, jewelers, like all kinds of industries, and not necessarily highly skilled position either. So, so it's usually, you, you, you can usually uh, find a good fit for someone who would want to come to Quebec. Uh, then there's other exemptions. Um, we didn't talk about this for the American side, but the C12 
uh, C12 is, is what is called the intra-company transfer. So a multinational or at least a company that has an office in Canada and outside Canada can transfer an employee and they don't need to test the labor market test because the labor market because it's the prerogative of the company to say look I want to stay internal I want to keep my resource and transfer them rather than look for a Canadian um, and the U.S. has a similar visa category it's the L1 which currently is experiencing a visa ban <laughs> um, so 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 also a good alternative for employers if even if they don't yet have an office in Canada if they open one they would qualify uh, to transfer someone from either the US or somewhere else to come to Canada. Mm -hmm. um, so then for younger professionals in the in Canada, there is what is called um, international experience class. It's for people between 18 and 35 years old uh, who have a job offer and whose country of citizenship has an agreement with Canada. And there's quite a lot of countries on the list or they uh, have or they can work alternatively with a recognized organization that would sponsor citizens from that country to to qualify under that program it doesn't require much else other than a job offer uh, of course proof that you qualify for the job but uh, there's no job categories or you know it's, it's pretty open you just have to be under 35 years old and then lastly uh, there's the NAFTA sorry you said that was called C1 no this one is IEC international experience class oh I'm sorry thank you yeah um, and then lastly, there's NAFTA, which I'm sure everybody's heard about. This exists in the US, in Canada, and Mexico, and it's only for those three nationalities. Um, NAFTA has identified 63 professions um, that include engineer, graphic designers, uh, computer science technician, uh, analysts. Um, and it's a good way to, if you hold one of those citizenships, it's a good way to transit between those three countries to be able to quickly get, on, get a job. You need a job offer, obviously, but you can quickly start working. The process is fairly simple. Mexicans do need a visa at the consulate to enter the U.S. for the first one. Renewals can be done at the border. Canadians, however, do not need one, uh, need a visa, so they can just apply at the border, and within an hour, you get your work permit, and you can work the same day. So if you fit in those categories, it's, it's, it's always the preferred choice. Right, right. And then for... Further breakdown of this information, would you, are there websites that people can go to? Is it like the United States.gov and Canada.gov? Like, how do we find out about this otherwise? <laughs> it's, I mean, the US and Canadian government do a pretty good job um, summarizing all this on their web, respective websites. So the US would be USCIS.gov, USCIS for Citizenship and Immigration uh, mm -hmm. Service. Gov, and the Immigration and Refugee um, Agency for Canada is, the website is simply canada.ca. Um, and there you can find everything, or you can just Google IRCC, and uh, you can find everything on work permits. It takes a bit of getting used to, to navigate. You have to know what you're looking for. Um, but once you've narrowed down your search, you, you the, 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 they do a pretty good job, you know, summarizing the requirements, the application process. Um, and then alternatively, um, you know, you can also reach out to uh, an attorney who would, um, you know, then obviously specifically go into your situation um, to, to address your particular need. Excellent. Well, we'll be sure and put those websites below this video um, when it's posted online so people can come back and reference that again. That's great. Um, yeah, all really good information. My goodness. 
I, I would really love to open it up to the group for questions at this point. Colette, if you um, want to pop in and share any questions for Sandrine. I do. Thank you. So my first question comes from Lisa Torres. She said she's currently living in Montreal with a closed work permit and no one wants to hire her. So she would appreciate any kind of advice for this dilemma that a lot of people are facing right now. She said that her work permit expires in June, 20, June 2022 and um, she's from the United States but was laid off. So, so she's kind of finding it difficult to find a new position. What are the proper steps to taking permanent residency for working one year in Quebec? In the meantime, what are the steps to getting it turned into an open work permit? And a final question, what also happens if my closed work permit expires before obtaining my permanent residency as I do not want to get deported? Okay, well, that's a, that's, that's a lot of questions. Um, well, first of all, transitioning from an open uh, closed work permit is tied to the employer. So to transition to a different employer, you obviously need the job offer, but once you have that, um, then the government has simplified the process to sort of obtain a uh, um, a pre-authorization to start work uh, before you actually get the work permit. Um, there's a, a process for that where you write to them directly and you explain the situation. They've adapted this because of COVID um, and um, and I believe it will stay in place uh, even beyond. But so, as, you know, it allows you to transition work permit without having to wait for the new one because it used to take really long for people wanting to change jobs, even if they were not laid off. To, to, to have to wait before they were able to start. So that's one thing. Um, now, permanent residency, there's just so many factors into play. For Quebec, eventually you'll have to prove that you speak French. So if this is not the case, uh, I suggest you start getting on it uh, because you'll have to submit a test to show that you meet a certain level of French uh, fluency. Uh, and then of course, yes, having 12 months for now uh, for people who already where in Canada on a work permit this summer. Um, 12 months of work experience is sufficient to be able to qualify. The law changed this summer, so prospectively this will no longer be the case. Um, it will be longer. Um, and, uh, and, and if the permit expires while the application is pending, uh, then it's fine, the person is in status. But that means this person needs to have obtained their CSQ, which is the Quebec acceptance certificate. It's, it's, uh, it's Quebec way of saying, look, we've pre-approved you, now you can file your application with the federal level. Um, so once you have that, you file your application for permanent residency at the federal level, then you're fine, even if your work permit expires, because eventually, uh, in any case, you're in status, you have you know, a, a petition pending, so nobody's gonna deport you. Um, so, so yes, I hope I've answered all of the sub-questions. Thank you. Um, I have one from Victor Ribas. He says, when do you think Canada will be available to, to be open again? I mean, due to COVID, everything is closed and he's been trying to get back to Montreal. He said that he spoke to Framestore Cinesite and they're interested in giving him an opportunity to work, but the situation of COVID uh, at the moment is making everything so slow. So do you have any information around that? Well, the good thing with Canada, there's no bans in the sense that if you have a work a job offer, you can have a work permit processed. Um, and once you have the work permit, whichever way you have to go to obtain it, depending on your nationality, you can present yourself at the border with the pre-approval or the work permit. 
um, obviously everybody, the only restrictions that apply to everybody is the quarantine, unless you're coming to work in a critical infrastructure such as in the health field or, or anything else like that. But otherwise it's a strict quarantine and new workers cannot be asked to work from home during those 14 days. So it's, it's obviously it complicates things a little, but entry is possible in and of itself. As long as you have a job offer, you cannot come as a visitor. Okay. Uh, is a question from KP. He says that he holds a B1 and B2 visa for the USA. What are the possibilities for me to be part of a paid internship program, such as the one that ILM and LA is currently offering for six months? This cannot be done on a B1 visa. There are other categories of visas for internships or training position um, with different conditions depending on the visa categories, but uh, the employer that is, is, is um, thinking of hiring this person as an intern would need to uh, sponsor this, this visa uh, process. It's either J1, there's H3, it really depends on the, on the internship that's offered and the, the conditions, uh, but yes, this cannot be done as a B1 holder. Okay. Um, this que question is from Christian Samuel. He lives in the UK, he's 24, and he works in the film and TV industry as a cinematographer. He said he's been invited to work on a new Netflix show as an assistant camera, cameraman in March next year by his mentor, who is the director and writer of the show. He is self-employed. Um, could he be, could his mentor, who's currently uh, the director of the show, be his sponsor? Or would he have to ask Netflix or Warner Brothers um, mm. to sponsor his visa? He also asked, what visa type should I get? Would it be an 01? And after this, would I be able to live and work in Vancouver, Canada, or be able to work in the US on a constant or frequent basis? So there's quite a lot of questions there. If you, if you want yeah. to reread, but um, maybe just to start, who would be the best person to sponsor him for that first uh, opportunity? Um, well, the, for the O1, the person that would be the best to sponsor really depends on what this mentor person can commit to. Because when you submit an O1 application, you need to show if it's not an employment relationship, uh, it's more of an agent scenario. You, the agent needs to show that they have engagements lined up for the future, either with Netflix, but also with a bunch of other um, um, third parties. Um, and so that's what is called an itinerary that you need to submit to the government and, and, and deal memos or all kinds of contracts to show that these deals are lined up for this particular individual. Um, so if that's not possible, then, you know, Netflix or whatever other bigger organization would be the best sponsor. Um, when it comes to O1 and being able to live and work, any of those work visas allow you to work permanently, I mean, for as long as the visa is valid and to be permanently in the US for the visa, for the visa duration. Um, by that, I mean, it doesn't need to be just mission specific. Uh, you can stay. Um, and uh, if you have similar simultaneous opportunities in Canada, then as long as you have the proper visa or work permit for Canada, you can transition back and forth, especially for artists that have several commitments with various entities. Uh, so it is definitely possible. Uh, I hope I've answered to all the questions. Thank you. <laughs> Yeah. Um, from Anuj Joshi, he said that he is a 3D artist, but he doesn't have a lot of experience, but he would love to start his career in Canada or the US. What type of visa should he apply for? What can he do? 
it really depends on his credentials. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, the job offer is a is is is, is a given, but does he does it depends on his diplomas? Uh, it's a young artist, so probably not a lot of experience. Um, coming in as uh, an intern sometimes is a good alternative. There are more options for that in Canada than in the U.S., but it really depends if the organization is willing to sponsor him in the U.S., then, then that may be an in. Um, or altogether H-1B. I mean, H-1B, if you have a bachelor's degree, you don't need to show years of experience. So uh, there's a lot of H-1Bs who are fresh out of school with their bachelor's degrees and they get qualified for the visa. Okay. Um, this one is from Daniel Covest. He said, my situation is that I worked in Vancouver last year, then my permit expired just as COVID started and he moved back to Mexico. He's been trying to go back to Canada and there have been a couple of opportunities, but those deals end because I don't have an open work permit and they're not willing to sponsor. So how can I get an open work permit before an actual employment offer? So any, I just want to, clarify here, any employment-based or sponsorship for a visa or work permit will be a closed work permit. Uh, Open work permit is only if, let's say, you've graduated in Canada or the US, and then you're given a post-graduation work permit, then you can work for anybody in your field. But if an employer sponsors you, then your visa will be tied or your work permit will be tied to that employer and you can't go and work for someone else unless you go through the process of changing permit. So then would the only way to get an open work permit would be to graduate from university in U.S. and that, that student work? That or being the spouse of somebody else who has a closed work permit. Um, so tuition yeah. or getting married? <laughs> well, <laughs> one is a lesser commitment than the other. <laughs> right. Uh, I have another question, Agatha Bustan. She has asked, you spoke a lot about STEM. What about opportunities for journalists and lawyers from countries abroad like India? Do the same visa procedures apply? There is a specific visa for journalists. Um, It's the I visa for media. Uh, It comes with various different criteria, such as uh, belonging to a foreign media organization, Uh, but it is specifically reserved for those. Um, for lawyers, um, there's not a lot of options. Unfortunately, the U.S. is not exactly in a shortage of lawyers. Uh, so there is, there is the NAFTA visa for Canadians. There is a lawyer category for Canadians and Mexicans. But for anybody else outside of North America uh, holding a different passport, um, the, alternative, the only alternative would be H-1B because it requires a bachelor's degree and you cannot be a lawyer without one. Um, so it's, it's, it's been done, it's possible, but uh, that's the only way really. So this question is from Anna. She said, I got an IEC visa in February, 2020, and I'll be able to enter Canada until February, 2021. Obviously because of COVID, this has become very difficult. What will happen if I'm not able to get a contract from an employer on time? Could I extend the time to enter the country? No, um, there's, there's the, the time that's given, it's already a year and that's the only time. Usually if you miss that window, you have to reapply. The government, as far as I can tell, uh, if I recall correctly, has not made allowance to extend that particular period. Uh, in fact, they even suspended the entry of IEC for a while. 
uh, if you didn't have a job or you couldn't justify your job was still ongoing because of, despite COVID. So, so no, they are not making allowance to extend that period. Damn it, COVID. Okay. Well, making it even more difficult for a, an already quite difficult process. This is from Manasa. He said, I work as a production coordinator in the visual effects industry and have been for about three years now. I would love to work in the US or Canada. I was actually looking into studying a postgraduate diploma or masters in digital media or similar. So I would like to know what are the chances of getting a job post-education in the industry? Because I have an idea of applying for um, PR, second option would be to, to apply for a work permit visa. Okay. And uh, just can you clarify, this person is thinking of going for this degree, does not yes. have yet, does not yet have it. Yes. Okay. Um, and so the, is the question that the person is looking at prospects of obtaining a job in either uh, side of the border? Yeah, for either um, the US or Canada. I think it's as a means to getting into the country would mm -hmm. potentially doing a degree and then maybe yeah. using the time after <clears throat> the degree to, to get a job. Yes, no, definitely. If, if, if you haven't already finished your education, um, coming to the North America to study is a great opportunity. It's a big, it's a, it's a huge uh, springboard into, especially those industries, Canada and the US are very active in VFX. Um, and, and any related industry in that field. Um, so obtaining a, a, a degree from either Canada or the US because it gives you a path to at least a work permit and in Canada it, it can also give you a path to permanent residency. It's a, it's a good investment I wanna say in the future. Um, and Canada is actually banking on universities attracting students uh, to be able, you know, and they give those 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 uh, programs uh, post graduation to, to attract people because they, they know that after they graduate they're not going to have to go back home, but they will have opportunities to continue to work and eventually become permanent. In the U.S., there's no straight line between student and permanent residency, but you know, with uh, if you jump the hoops between post grad work permit, eventually another work permit, you can eventually access uh, permanent residency as well. Thank you. And finally, from Marie Lou, she said, hi, how do you know if something will be, I'm sorry, do you know if something will be made to activate working holiday visa for people already in Canada while the borders are closed? It's been hard to find a job because companies aim for residents or Canadians and not work permits. It is hard because so many Canadians and residents have lost their jobs. Uh, and working holiday has been on the low end of priority because of COVID, simply because it's a visa where you can come in without a job offer. So by definition, you're not essential because you're coming in and you're still looking. Uh, so you haven't quite proven that you have, you will be essential to Canada. So if you're already in Canada, it's, it's good because you're not stuck outside. But yes, finding employment in this current climate is, is not easy with, with this particular uh, visa category. And I have one, one more if we could maybe squeeze it in. She, this is from um, a candidate who said they applied for an H-1B before the restrictions earlier this year. So his application is in the process. Um, he was in an F1 and it's been tr transitioning to an H-1B. Currently his application is submitted and they're getting close to the October, I guess it's a deadline, but there is no information about what is happening for 
for him. Can, he, can you shed some light on the current H1B situation in regards to COVID and restrictions? Um, and so that person, I understand, is on F1 status in the U.S. Um, so he or she is fine uh, in the sense that there is uh, what is called a cap gap that bridges the F1 status to um, H1B once it's approved. So this person is not going to fall out of status. And H1Bs are being adjudicated uh, qu uh, quite on schedule. I mean, there were some delays, but uh, they're being adjudicated. They do issue a lot of RFEs, requests for evidence um, for some industries, especially in the IT field. But, uh, you know, provided the employer can prove and complete the, the, the requested information, uh, usually these, these petitions are approved. Um, I know October 1st is coming soon, but you know, they're working hard to approve them all. And I have myself quite a few in the pipeline and I see that they're trickling down. And so I'm confident that it's gonna be finalized before November. That's great. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, of course it depends when the petition was submitted, but. Yeah. Excellent. Thank you. That's so much good information. We really appreciate you educating us about all this and answering all those questions. So awesome. We'll be sure and put those sites you called out below in this chat and also link to the organization that you work with personally. And I encourage everyone to check out the Access VFX website, accessvfx.org. And that'll link you to the YouTube page where this um, will be posted in, I believe, about a week or so. And you'll also find um, links there to the Access VFX podcast. And that has a lot of great content about freelancing, breaking into the industry, master classes in VFX skills like rigging, modeling, a bunch of awesome stuff. So thank you again, Colette, Sandrine, and everybody for joining us today. Really appreciate it. We hope this was helpful for you. There we go. End of another Access VFX podcast. We really hope you enjoyed it. To find out more about what we discussed, our mentoring program and events we're at, then head over to our website at www.accessvfx.org and follow us on social media. Big thank you for listening and until next time, bye.